Welcome to the Grace Monroe Podcast. We are a community of Jesus followers located in Monroe, Georgia, that exists to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. For more information about our church, visit graceformonroe.com. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this week's message. Three years ago, uh, I walked into Grace Monroe for the first time. Uh, which probably wasn't amazing in itself, but what was amazing was that a couple of months before that, um, I was sitting in a rented room uh, contemplating how to end my life. Um, It it was, I had just come to the the end of me. Um, I've spent most of my life searching for someone or something in this world to fill a God-sized hole in my heart Of course, we never find that. When I was a teenager, um, I discovered that uh, alcohol helped me with a lot of these problems. I felt confident and in control, like I could talk to people and be around people. This was where the devil walked in and took a stronghold in my life. And um, spent the next 30 years, 40 years almost, believing his lies. Uh, deceptions about me, about other people. Um, By 2017, fast forward a few decades, um, I crashed and burned my life. Um, My family had about abandoned me. I had lost my job. I lost my home. And I was quickly running through all my cash. I spent about eight months in a very deep depression. Um, it was just, it was a horrible, horrible time. And one day I was walking by the mirror in the bathroom and I caught a glimpse of myself. I just started crying. I couldn't believe where I had come to in my life. And um, I, I looked up and I just cried out to God. You know, I said, I don't know. I know I need to quit, I just don't know how. I mean, after so many years, I just didn't know how to quit and I had ruined my life. I didn't know how to start over. Um, a few months later in 2018 um, is when you found me back in that room contemplating ending my life. And then God stepped in and there he was. Um, don't know how, maybe when I screamed out to him in such pain. But I decided that day that I wasn't going to drink anymore because it was either keep drinking or die. And I knew that I couldn't hurt my family that way, especially my son. So he just delivered me that day. Um, it was it's the only way I can explain it because I certainly couldn't have done it. We can't do anything without him, you know. So one Sunday, I walked into um, church after I'd been here a few weeks, and um, I hadn't had anything to drink for a couple of months. I was still new at this, and uh, God led me to this church. I know he did. But I saw in the grace notes there was a Celebrate Recovery, a little thing for Celebrate Recovery. Now, I knew... You know, I wasn't, I'm not the kind of person to sit down and share, (laughs) although I'm here, (laughs) Um, especially share some of the bad things. And, you know, 
I was so full of shame and guilt, you know, at that point, still trying to work through a lot of that. Um, but Selbert Recovery kept coming up everywhere I'd look. It was like God was putting it in my face. So one Sunday after service, I got up all the courage I could and I approached Jack Crow. Uh, I discovered at Celebrate Recovery and here at Grace even is that CR was a safe place to go and it was a safe, non-judgmental place to go for healing. And I learned that through, through Grace and reading the Bible and learning you know, what God says to us, that we're not meant to do life alone, that we, we need to share and confess our sins to each other so that we can heal. Um, and I spent that first year at CR and made such close relationships with people. and We all got to watch each other uh, grow and be transformed and restored. Jack helped so many people just by sharing his story. And that's why I decided to do this today, um, is that God uses broken people to help heal other people. And um, I didn't, I would have never done this otherwise, but I think God wants me to share my story. And um, he has truly restored everything I broke. Um, I have, my family welcomed me back with open arms and forgiveness and love. My son and I are building the strongest relationship we've ever had. Um, and last year, I married my best friend and my sweetheart of eight years. And we, he's just wonderful and loves me. So God gave me back everything and more um, of what I destroyed. And I know I wake up each day with a, a grateful heart just, and I look around me and still can't, can't believe it. I love hearing those stories each week and uh, seeing the way that God is doing his work of restoration. Uh, well, it's great to be here with you this morning. I remember just a few years ago when Brian walked us through this facility, believing God's heart for restoration here. I've been with you many times over at the mill, but I remember walking around. Brian showed us the different uh, facilities and rooms. He showed us where The Walking Dead was filmed and uh, all the things that had happened there. And, and he shared with us his vision for what God might do on this campus over the next couple of years. And uh, it just does my heart good this morning. I, I went ahead and walked around, and I, I, I hear you're also going to get to finish the rock gym, which I think is absolutely amazing. But I walked around and just, uh, just really was in awe today at the things that God has done here over the last couple years. So it's an honor and privilege for me to be here with you. I love the work that God is doing here at Grace Monroe and the work that God is doing across the Grace family of churches. Uh, let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. What are the words that have shaped you? Words that have kind of changed your life or redirected your trajectory. Words that maybe someone has spoken over you or said to you that 
changed where you were moving and reoriented where you were headed. We could think back in our life at some of these experiences, maybe for some of you that are married in the room, is that first moment where you were going to tell your, your soon-to-be spouse or hope-to-be spouse, that, that moment where you said the words, I love you, and you waited to see whether they would say it back. Or standing at the altar, these words that shape our life where you say, I do. And a new trajectory to your life is formed. Or or maybe words where you're told for the first time, I'm pregnant. That changes things. Or maybe I'm pregnant again. Really? (laughs) It changes things. What are those words that have shaped you? I'll never forget as a kid, my dad coming into my brother in my room every night. And every night he would pray over us. And the prayer that I remember, it's just vivid in my mind today as it was every day that he would say it. He would say, God, I, I, I am, I'm begging for your best and I would, I, I, would, I would love for you to use me to change and shape things in the world. But he said, God, if you don't choose to use me, I pray that you would use my boys. That they would be men of God who dared to reshape and change things. And as a kid sitting in my bed, I remember just the power of those words said over and over and over and over me. What are those kinds of words for you? You think back to your experience, maybe it was a coach who saw potential in you and and spoke out the word leader over you. Or maybe a teacher who, who impacted your life that said something to you, or a pastor or a friend. It was Abraham Herschel, the great Jewish theologian that said this. He said, words create worlds. He was thinking about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and in those three words, he sums up the message of Genesis 1 and 2, where where God speaks, and everything beautiful is created. He spoke those words to his students and to his daughter. He had lived these words. He was in Poland when the Nazis came in and killed his mother and three daughters. He saw the power of language for good or for bad and what it could do to shape a world. That's why he also walked arm in arm with Martin Luther King Jr. from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery because he knew the power of language. Well, when your leaders here at Grace Monroe begin to think about what is the language that we want to use to shape this community, the the one word that stood out, and this has been the heart of Grace Monroe for years now, is the word restoration. That when we sense what God is doing here, yes, God is doing great things across the great family, but particularly here at Grace Monroe, it's the word restoration that continues to bubble up. In fact, it's part of your mission statement that we are pursuing God's heart 
for the restoration of all things, the restoration of lives, the restoration of families, the restoration of a city. And it's this language that reverberates from this house of worship that what God is up to here in Monroe is that he's restoring things and that what we are up to as a church is that we're joining God, we're pursuing God's heart for the restoration of all things. And it's why for the last several weeks we've been in a series where we've been talking about what the marks of a disciple look like. What does a disciple here at Grace Monroe look like? What is our finish line? When are we successful? And we've been using the acronym of the word restored to call our attention to what a follower of Jesus might look like. And so as we've been walking through this the last couple of weeks, the R stood for receptive. That we want to be people who are hearing the voice of God, entrusting the heart of God enough to act on what we've heard. That we want to be people who who hear God's voice and put his words into practice. We said that what it means to be a disciple is not just to be receptive, but to be equipped That we want to be people who study the words and the ways and the works of Jesus. That we know how to read our Bibles. We know how to talk to God in prayer. That we want to be an equipped people who hear the voice of God. The S was the word secure. That we want to be secure in our identity and calling. Do we know who God has uniquely made us to be? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says we are God's workmanship. The Greek word there is the word poema. That we are God's poem. Created to do good works, Paul says. Which God prepared beforehand. In other words, God's been having a dream about your life from the beginning of time. That before you came into existence, you were in God's imagination. He's been dreaming about the life you would live, who you would become, and what you would do. And we, as disciples, want to be secure in that identity. That the God of the universe has been imagining your life. He's been dreaming about you. And there's a unique calling for you to step into. The T, we said, was about transformation. It's about being transformed. That we want to grow in the character and in the competency of Jesus. That we want to be people who reflect Jesus more this year than we did last year. And how are we growing to do the things that Jesus did and become the kind of person that Jesus was? And finally, last week, Brian was talking about open. How do we give our time, our talents, our treasure? How do we live with with open hands and become a people who are generous? Generous because God has been so generous toward us. And today we come to that second R, and it's the word real. That we want to be real in our relationships. We're asking the question, who are your 2 a.m. friends? What is the community that God is inviting you to join? I want to say just right away today that you and I were made for relationship. 
I mean, even before COVID, we, we had this sense that, that we, we wanted to be part of a real community. But if COVID has taught us anything, it's that you and I, as, as human beings, are hardwired to be with others. We're hardwired for real, authentic relationships. We want to be seen, and we want to be known. And through COVID, we've seen just the sense of isolation and loneliness and what that can do to wreak havoc upon our lives. But the good news that I have for you this morning is this. God wants relationships for you even more than you want them for yourselves. That the God of the universe, yes, he made you unique. We say we're all called to be unique, but, but none of us was ever created to be independent. We're not supposed to be codependent or independent, but interdependent with one another because God himself has formed us for community. And one of the ways that we talk about that throughout the Grace family of churches is we talk about what it looks like to be part of what we call a family on mission. Who are the people in your life that you are doing the will of God with? Who are the people in your life that know you and you know them? Who are your 2 a.m. friends? Who are the friends that if you were moving, you could call them to come load the truck with you? You know those are your real friends if they'll help you move, right? (laughs) You've been there. you got to move something. You're like, who do I call? In God's heart, from the very beginning, has been for community. But here's the big thought this morning. Big thought this morning is that community is not something you find. Community is something you join. All throughout our world, you hear people who are searching for community. We're searching for community while community lies all around us. But you can search your entire life for community and never find it because community happens when you join it. Who are the people that live around you? Who are your neighbors in your church family? Who are those people? We're sitting here in community today. But just because you're sitting here in a room full of people doesn't mean you actually have joined the community that God has brought you. I want to work through the scripture today, and we're going to be just on a, on a ride throughout scripture today. We'll start in Genesis chapter 1, but we'll work all throughout the Bible, because I want us to hear God's heart for real relationships for us. We'll start in Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks and worlds are created. Literally, words create worlds. Verse 26, after God has been speaking for five days, and he creates light and darkness and separates the two. He harnesses it in the sun, moon, and stars. He creates the land and vegetation, and he creates the animals. Then God says this in verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. From right here in Genesis chapter 1, we, 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 we get a sense that, that God is the author of community, that in fact God is himself a family on mission. He says, let us make man in our image. There's a use of the royal we there, but as Christians, as we read this, we, we sense this, 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 this doctrine of the Trinity already from Genesis chapter 1. That God himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, that is Jesus' chief revelation of who God is. That's family language. That God in and of himself is a community. That God is a family on mission. And his first words that he creates Adam and Eve with, he says, Go and make a family. And subdue the world. There's a mission for you to be part of. And you need to create a family to be part of this mission. Genesis chapter 2 in the retelling of the Genesis story. Listen to God's words here. Beginning in verse 18. The Lord said, Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he, uh, that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that she should be called woman, for she has been taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be unified to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and, their, and, and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That God, Genesis chapter 1, reminds us is a family on mission. And that God creates man, and in the midst of that, he asks Adam to name the animals. But as God looks at, at Adam, and he sees that in all of uh, 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 the animal kingdom, there are, there are, there are, are, are communities of families. God looks at Adam and says, for Adam no suitable helper was found. That the language of Genesis chapter 1 where God creates and he looks at it and he names it and then he values it and says it's good. This has been repeated six different times that God speaks and things are created and he says it is good. But in Genesis chapter 2, the shocking interruption to the divine rhythm is that God looks at Adam and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. That man needs a suitable helper. The Hebrew words are the Azar Konegdo. The helper suitable. In fact, when God gives Adam the mission to be fruitful and increase, Adam is biologic. It's biologically impossible for Adam to fulfill that mission on his own. That he needs the helper suitable. 
biologically even, to, to, to fulfill the great commission that God has placed upon his life. But I want to suggest to you that, that more than just a declaration of marriage here in Genesis chapter 2, what we really see here is God's heart for community. That all throughout the Bible, when God calls someone to something, that he is also bringing the helper suitable. Moses, I want you to lead my people from Egypt to the promised land. Moses says, I can't do that by myself. And God says, Aaron is already on the way. The helper suitable is on his way there. That all throughout the Bible, God is a family on mission. God's creating a family on mission. That he's inviting us to join his family on mission. That you and I were created for family on mission. And whether you're here and married or single, what we're saying is this. God's heart for you is he's saying, it's not good for you to be alone. And that God is bringing the helper suitable to you. This was huge for me. I remember in college when I heard God say this for the first time because I was convinced that to follow God meant that God was going to lead me to some island off the coast of Africa somewhere and I would be on that deserted island all by myself. I mean, literally, I can remember as a teenager just not wanting to surrender my life to God because I was sure that God wanted to keep me isolated and alone. But then I heard those words from Genesis chapter 2. It's not good for man to be alone. In college, I met some of my best friends, and we were on mission with God together. And this is something that Kim and I have taken deeply serious in our own lives. In fact, Kim and I have never moved anywhere by ourselves. We've always moved with a group of people or into what we would call a family on mission, people that we resonated with and that were doing the will of God. We, we say, well, why would we do that? Be, 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 because we believe it's the best way to live. Can I tell you today, the quality of your life is directly related to the quality of people that you do life with. That we live in a world today, in America that believes the only question worth asking is the what question. So you get out of college and people ask you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? But I want to tell you this morning, the who question is just as important as the what question. Who are you going to do life with? Who are you choosing to surround yourself with? Who is the community that you are joining? And for God's heart, this has been on his heart from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 12, after the fall of mankind, he comes to one man named Abram. He says, here's what I want you to do. My heart, my dream, Genesis 1-2 dream, I've not given up on. I want you to go and make a family on mission, Abram. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. It's the word that Jeremiah gives to the exiles in the middle of the Babylonian empire where they've been deported from their family. God says that in Babylon, the people need to increase and multiply. That all throughout the Old Testament, God's heartbeat and God's dream is to say, I want you to be part of a family on mission. And maybe God knows our tendency in the world we live in. We will want ourselves into isolation. Because here's what I know. When you graduate from college, if you tell your mom and dad, hey, I'm moving here because I got a great job, it'll make total sense to, to them. But if you say, I'm moving here because I want to be part of this the group of people, they'll be like, what, 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 what do you mean? 
We live in a world where we want ourselves, and we want ourselves into the right job, in the right neighborhood, in the right house, where we don't know anyone. And God has said from the beginning of time, no, 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 you were not meant to do life alone. In fact, you cannot accomplish the dreams that I have for you on your own. I would say it so boldly as to say, if you could accomplish what God has called you to do in your life by yourself, you've either misheard God or overestimated yourself. That all of us are called to be unique. But none of us are called to be independent. And at the very foundation of who God himself is, he is a community. And when he created man and woman, he created them for community. That he is bringing the helper suitable if we just have eyes to see it. God is a family on mission, but I also want to suggest to you that Jesus, when he came to earth, came from this family on mission. And the first thing that he did is create a family on mission, even though Jesus never married in his life. It didn't keep him from creating a family. John chapter 1 verse 14 says it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus, John in his telling of Jesus' story, says that Jesus came from a family on mission to the earth. And that he made his dwelling among us. John chapter 1, verse 35, we get a story from John's perspective. In the Gospels, I love the way the Gospels work. It's kind of like a four-camera shoot of Jesus' life. You get Mark's, you know, kind of lens. And you get Matthew's kind of lens. You get John's kind of lens. You get Luke's kind of lens. And John gives us a, a picture that we don't get in the other Gospels. But here's the way that, that, Jesus, that he talks about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He says, the next day John was there, again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, you, you got to get into this. I mean, it feels just a little bit stalker-esque, right? I mean, because Jesus is passing by, and John says, you know, behold, the, 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 the Son of God, the Lamb, takes away the sin of the world. And, and these disciples, they just start following Jesus. And Jesus notices that there's some people following him, and he's like, you know, what do you guys want? And their first question back is, where are you staying? <laughs> it's a little weird, but listen to Jesus' reply. Come, he, he said, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to go find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. All throughout the book of John, this idea of staying or remaining or abiding will color the entire narrative. And from the very beginning, it starts with a group of people that, that the Father is bringing to Jesus. They're the helpers suitable from John chapter 1 that begin to be the group that helps Jesus accomplish the mission that the Father has sent him toward. 
We know this is big in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue after he has been in the desert. And he opens up Isaiah chapter 61, which is the signature scripture here for Grace Monroe, when he talks about what it is the Father has called him to do, that he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery for the blind, to recover a sight for the blind, to release those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He opens that up in his home synagogue of Nazareth. And he begins to teach them. But not everyone is receptive to this. Verse 29, it says this. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and sat on the Sabbath and began to teach the people. So Jesus, in his home synagogue of Nazareth, is beginning to preach, but the people in his hometown aren't receptive to him. Jesus comes from a family of mission, on mission. He's born into a family, but you need to know Jesus' first experience of community is the community rejected him. He's in his hometown, and they they bring him to a cliff because they want to throw him off. And no one in his immediate family comes to his aid. Jesus comes from a family on mission, but Jesus knows what it feels like to be rejected by a family that you were born into. Literally, he's rejected in Nazareth, and so what is his move? Is it that he, for, he, he, he gives up on family? No, the Bible says he goes to Capernaum. Why Capernaum? Because in John chapter 1, we're told that there are five disciples who the Lord has been bringing to them. They live in Capernaum. So it's in this moment when Jesus experiences rejection in Nazareth, where no one in his biological family comes to his aid, that he goes to Capernaum. He knows the who is as important as the what. And what we see in Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3, most of the ministry that Jesus does in his early ministry is is anchored in Peter's oikos. Peter's house. Literally, you can go to Capernaum and you can look at Peter's house. And it becomes the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. It's probably where the man, you know, that was crippled is lowered through the roof. But in Mark chapter 3, we experience this idea of family on mission where Jesus redefines what family looks like. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse... 31, it says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside. Now, if you read the verses in front of this, his mother and brothers are there probably to take Jesus to an insane asylum. They think he's out of his mind. The Bible says they're there to take charge of him. Again, it just shows us the the rejection that Jesus faced even in his biological family. So some people come to him while he's sitting in this room with his disciples, the helper suitable that God has provided for his life. And they say, your mother and your brothers are outside. But watch the way Jesus totally redefines what family looks like. He says this, verse 29, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. 
Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my, brother, my mother and my brothers. And here's the way Jesus redefines what family looks like. He says this, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. That, that, that for Jesus, family isn't just your bloodline. It's not just your, your biology. That when Jesus thinks about community, that when Jesus thinks about family on mission, when Jesus thinks about relationships, he says, this is the group of people that you choose to do God's will with. And this is important for us because maybe you're in the room today and you love the idea of community, but you've got all the bruises and all the scars to prove it. You feel like you've been rejected from community. Maybe you've been rejected from your family. But Jesus comes. He knows what it feels like. He comes from a family on mission. He's rejected by a family, but he doesn't give up on family. And here in Mark chapter 3, he says, no, God is doing a new work. It's a community of people who are living real relationships with one another that are on mission together. And if you want to know the way that God thinks about family, it's not simply the bloodline that you were born into. It's the people of God that you choose to do the will of God with. This frames for us our understanding, I would suggest, of what church is supposed to be. That even in the Old Testament, God was literally, he was repetitive for his heart. He wanted Israel to know that before that they were a nation, that they were a family. Why are there so many genealogies in the Old Testament? I think it's God saying, hey, you are not just a nation, you are a family. You are not just a function, you are a family. You are not just a task, you are a tribe. All throughout the Old Testament, God is reminding the people of Israel, they are not a nation, they are a family. And if that is the message of the Old Testament, then I would suggest to you that one of the messages of the New Testament is this. Before we were a church, we were a family. And that the primary metaphor for what the church is, is not a business or an organization. Although there are things that we can learn from the business world and from the organizational world. But if you want to know who the people of God are, the people of God are family on mission. That the primary metaphor for our understanding of church is that we are a group of people increasing and multiplying to live out God's mission on the world. And even though we might sit in a room with people that we are not biologically related to, Jesus says this, it is this kind of place where you can find your place in family. That there's a seat at the table for you. That community is available That you don't have to simply find community. But God has already brought you into community. You just have to decide whether you're going to join it or not. God is a family on mission. When Jesus came, he created a family on mission. On mission. He redefined what family on mission looked like. And the third point this morning is this the church is that 
family on mission. Brian referred to this passage last week. I want to read it one more time because I want to just end with talking about what this might look like in our lives. But the earliest description of the church in Acts chapter 2 shares with us what this family on mission looked like. Brian read it last week. I'm going to read it again this week. It says this, they devoted themselves. This is verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, seeing their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That The first description of the New Testament church is this is a group of people who are eating together. This is a group of people who are doing life together. This is the people who are sharing together. They're doing the will of God together, and they are increasing in number around the mission of God. If you didn't know that was a description of church, you would probably look at that and think it's a description of what family should be. Eating together and sharing with one another. A place where people are finding themselves and losing themselves. And I think that's what you really want. I remember, I've told this story here before, but I, I want to share it again. I remember my, my daughter Izzy when she was four years old. She's 14 now. She's not here today, so I can talk about her a little bit. But I remember when she was just a, a little kid at four years old, one of the things that Izzy loved to do when, when I would come home is that she always wanted to play hide-and-seek with me. And so every time that I would come home, she'd be like, Daddy, Daddy, can we go play hide-and-seek? And I'd say, yeah, we, we, we can play hide-and-seek. But she always wanted to be the hider. And so, you know, I knew what my job was to do, so I would go in the other room and I'd count the ten, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready or not, here I come. And the thing about Izzy when she was four years old is she always went and hid in the same place, in the downstairs bathroom. And as her dad, I knew that I was supposed to just kind of play along, so I'd walk around the house, even though I knew where she was at. I would walk around the house, and I would say really loud, i say, I wonder where Izzy's at. Is Izzy in the living room? No, Izzy's not in the living room. Is Izzy in the upstairs bedroom? No, Izzy's not in the upstairs bedroom. Is Izzy in the dining room? No, Izzy's not in the dining room. And I'd walk around the house just saying real loud, where's Izzy at? I wonder where Izzy's at. And after a little while, when Izzy was hiding, she would get a little anxious. And so as she would hide and I would ask the question, she would start yelling from the bathroom, I'm in here. <laughs> Is Izzy in the kitchen? No, Izzy's not in the kitchen. I'm in here. Is Izzy in the garage? No, Izzy's not in the garage. I'm in here. And finally, after what seemed like forever, I'd open up the downstairs bathroom, and she'd say, here I am, and she would jump into my arms. And it was one of those things that I loved as a dad. See, I think in our lives, it's easy for us to hide. But what we really want is to be found. What we really want is to be seen. What we really want to know is, is there a place at the table for me? 
And the story we see from God himself in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and all through the Old Testament. The story we see with what Jesus created. And the story we see in the early church is that God's people have always been a family. That is on mission. That the what is directly attached to the who. So have you joined it? When we think about what this looks like practically for our groups, for our neighborhoods, what this looks like practically in our lives, I'm going to draw a little diagram up here to give you a tool to think about how we create these kinds of families on mission and what that looks like. And they're going to follow along with me on the screens in case you're in the back and can't see it. And I want to suggest to you that as we look at our lives, both in our biological families and beyond it, in our missional families, that there are two things that go together. And, and, and I love combinations. You love combinations too, right? I mean, what is macaroni without cheese, right? It's mashed potatoes and gravy, right? It is peanut butter and chocolate. No, not jelly, chocolate. It's Reese peanut butter cups, right? They're combinations. It's hot wings and blue cheese dressing. You got to have both of them. And I don't know why this is. There's like a condiment shortage in our world today, isn't there? I mean, literally, you go to get like 20 wings, they give you one blue cheese. Like, you use it on your first wing. You're like, no, I need blue cheese and ranch, and I want to swim in it, right? I mean, you know, you know that this is right, because when we get extra condiments, we collect them. I mean, go to any single guy's house and open the refrigerator. There'll be no groceries in there, but there'll be several Taco Bell sauces in there, right? this combination. You've got to have one without the other. Well, you can't have one without the other. And I want to suggest to you when it comes to building real relationships, you need two things. You need authenticity. So this would be high authenticity down here on the, on the, on the tool. This would be low authenticity. But you also need maturity. A sense that, that you're growing together. That you're on mission together. that you're moving somewhere. And I want to suggest to you that oftentimes in our world today, we're doing mashed potatoes but no gravy, or macaroni but no cheese. We're doing one of these things, and if we only do one, we end up in a difficult or bad situation. If we're only doing authenticity but we're not growing together, we're not on mission together, there's not a sense that we're moving somewhere, at best, we will champion vulnerability. But in the end, I want to suggest to you that what that will really become is sick. You ever been in a small group where it's just simply about everyone's problems? And you can have a good week, but if you don't have a problem, it's like you're excluded from the group. You start making problems up, right? Because... <laughs> and no one ever really gets healed. And no one ever really becomes whole, but it's incredibly vulnerable. Can I tell you, vulnerability and authenticity are a pathway to community, but they are not the end. Authenticity and vulnerability are supposed to lead to health. If it's just about authenticity or vulnerability, then you could say people in prison are the most healthiest people. because They're just being authentic. I was just being who I was. 
Richard Foster says, conformity to a sick culture is to become sick. And so when we're authentic, but we're not growing or maturing, then what ends up happening is, is we end up creating a place, a community of sick people who just get together to spread the sickness. We just get together to talk about our husbands or to talk about our wives and just to kind of say, well, you know, my, my, my marriage isn't good and just continuing to, you know, be vulnerable. And you got to have a place. You want to have a safe place to be authentic. But if the goal is just to be authentic, you end up with everyone sick. On the other hand, if it's just about maturity, if we just do the growing thing, but we're not authentic, in the end, what we end up creating is a fake community. So if it's just about our celebrations and we're just coming in and talking about how much success we've had, but we never open up about our struggles, we end up creating a small group. You ever been in a small group where no one ever has any issues? And so you just go in there and you got you got you got a bluff, you got a fake, you got to act like everything's right. You might you might have struggles, but you can't really be authentic and share them. And in the end, you just end up bluffing with one another and it becomes a very fake community. If you're not doing either of those, it becomes a kind of dead community. We're not being authentic and we're not growing. Nothing's really happening. But I want to suggest to you that a real community, an authentic community, a healthy community is one that is both highly authentic and highly mature. And here's what that looks like. It means creating a family where I can be honest about my struggles, but I also don't have to hide my successes. You want to know what a... healthy family looks like, a healthy group looks like. It means, it means I can come in there and I can be honest about, here's the things that I'm struggling with. But I also don't have to hide my successes. When, when I got to hide my successes, you know what, I end up doing that, quote unquote, out of humility, but I'm actually robbing someone else of their potential prosperity. Because if we don't share our successes and we don't think about how God has done that work in us, we can't reproduce that or pass that on to others. So if we want to create a healthy family on mission, it says we got to be honest about our struggles. We got to be honest about the things that we're dealing with. But at the same time, we're not going to hide our successes. We're going to come in here and what you're going to experience is real. It's going to be ups and downs. It's going to be struggles and celebration. And we're going to celebrate with one another because we believe if God's prospered one of us, he's prospering all of us. This is what we see in Acts chapter 2. They gave to anyone who was in need. You can't give to anyone who's in need if you don't know what the needs are. So there has to be this authenticity. But at the same time, It says that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, that this was a maturing community. That they weren't just coming in and sharing their needs, but that as they were growing and as God was prospering them, they were giving to one another so that no one in the community found themselves needy. This is what the church is supposed to be, a place of real relationships where family is formed. And sadly, for many of you, you may have experienced that in everywhere but church. See, we know this. We know this is the way to do things with power. Some of you, you experienced this in a fraternity or in a sorority when you were in college. 
At its best, it's a family on mission. You experienced it on a sports team or in a band. It's a family on mission. Even, I would suggest to you, gangs. They have the wrong mission, but the reason they're so powerful, they function as a family on mission. They've got Jesus' methodology. They just don't have his mission. And that methodology is powerful, even if it's the right mission or not. And God, from the very beginning, has said, this is my heart for my people. This is my heart for you. It's my heart, I would suggest, that God is saying for Grace Monroe, if we're going to be about pursuing the heart of God for the restoration of all things, then we've got to be real in our relationships. Number one characteristic of a student who keeps their faith beyond high school is whether they've had an adult other than their mom or dad speaking into their lives. It's whether they've been raised in a family on mission. And as many buildings as we'll build here, and as much restoration as we'll do on the outside, what we do on the outside has got to be mirrored by who we become on the inside. That we will be a community of real relationships that carry God's heart as a family on mission. So today, uh, we've been rating ourselves throughout the series. Where, where are you on this? Is there a red light, yellow light, green light? In, in your community, is there a tendency to be sick or a tendency to be fake? And what would it look like today if we just took one step toward healthy community, real relationships, if the church began to be a family again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you invite us into the family that you are inherently. That we don't have to live life alone. That we don't have to just simply live life sick or fake but that your heartbeat in restoration for our relationships is that we would be real. I pray today, God, that you will help us take a step in that direction, that you'll help us to open up about struggles that we have or to open up about successes that we've had so that we can be a healthy family who is continuing to pursue your Genesis 1-2 dream in the world. So, God, as we pray for Monroe, and we pray for, for, for restoration as we pray to become the restored people. As the walls go up in our church and our buildings and rooms are restored. May those rooms be filled with restored people who are real in their relationships. And may people walk into this building. May people walk into our homes. May people walk into our neighborhoods and experience the power of being found. And named and known. Make us, God, a family on mission. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. Once again, our mission at Grace Monroe is to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, go to graceformonroe.com slash connect. Also, if you felt blessed by our ministry and want to partner with us financially, everything you need to know about giving is online at graceformonroe.com slash give. We hope you have a wonderful week. Be blessed.